Good morning. We are reading from Genesis 49, starting in verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die, in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Arad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Etad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was called Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of, am I in the place of God. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. We've been working through the history of Genesis. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, died with all of his children around him. But Joseph wept. He wept twice in our account here today. He wept over his father's death. And then later on, months later, he wept when his brothers sent him a message asking for his forgiveness. It had been almost 40 years, 40 years since his brothers originally sold him off into slavery. 
You can do the math by reading through the chapters of Genesis from the from the date of the original crime when Joseph was 17 years old uh, through their amazing reunion uh, as brothers 22 years afterwards uh, to when they all bring their father Jacob down into Egypt to live there. And he lives another 17 years, Jacob, uh, before he dies. You put all that together, it basically comes out to 39 years from the original crime. To the moment that his brothers said, Joseph, would you forgive us? After four decades, Joseph wept. And his brothers asked for forgiveness. You hear this a lot in pastoral counseling, but somebody once said to me, you know, I thought that I had, I thought that I had forgiven my ex-spouse years before. But we both showed up at our mutual grandchild's birthday party. And I discovered through a swelling up of unexpected emotions that I was still deeply hurt. To forgive another person, according to Dan Allender, who is a professor and an author and a counselor who's written a lot of books especially when it comes to forgiving people who have abused you. Dan Allender wrote that to forgive another person is always an ongoing, deepening, quickening process rather than a once-for-all event. True forgiveness takes time, is complicated, and involves consistent effort. And what I hope you will see today in Joseph's story of forgiveness is that reconciliation requires the pursuit of repentance and forgiveness. Reconciliation, according to the Bible, involves the persistent pursuit of repentance by the offender and the persistent pursuit of forgiveness by the offended. Each person Doing their part. What I think is amazing is the Bible makes it very clear that even when reconciliation is not attainable, let's be honest, sometimes we don't attain reconciliation in this life. Even then, the Bible assures us that forgiveness is always possible. Even when reconciliation is not attainable, forgiveness always is. Learning to forgive people is actually at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Forgiveness is, you can say what you want. You can profess what you want about what you believe. But the proof is in our willingness to practice and learn forgiveness. So I want to talk to you today about pursuing repentance and forgiveness and actually righteousness. Pursuing repentance, pursuing forgiveness, and pursuing righteousness. Now, uh, pursuing repentance actually encourages people to forgive you. If you pursue repentance, it will help others whom you have offended to forgive you. Repentance, according to the Bible, uh, comes from two ideas. Uh, The Old Testament idea came from a Hebrew word, which meant to turn around and move in a new direction. And from a New Testament Greek word, which actually meant to have a changed mind. 
And when you put those two ideas, those two ideas together, you discover, according to the Bible, that repentance is a change of mind or of heart that produces a change in behavior. That's repentance. But I'm not certain at all that Jacob's sons are a model of repentance. When we consider what they've been through and what they've done and how they handle the situation after their father dies. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to suggest that, that Jacob's older boys were a model of repentance. Nonetheless, there's something in their actions that gives us a hint of true repentance. Now, in verse 15, we are told, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You will forgive me, I hope. I have to return to the Godfather. There's so much there. Um, Fredo Corleone, uh, in The Godfather Part 2, Fredo Corleone is involved. He doesn't really know what he's getting involved in, but he turns out to be involved in an unsuccessful plot to murder his younger brother, Michael Corleone, the Godfather. And Michael, after discovering that Fredo was involved in an attempted assassination on him, uh, he's just not willing to forgive his, young, his bigger brother. He's not. And at one point, he actually says to Fredo, you're nothing to me now. He says a lot of other things, but essentially, he says to Fredo, you're dead to me. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you. I don't want to see you. If you come to visit our mother, I want to know in advance so that I don't have to be there. Fredo, you're dead to me. But what's interesting is he then goes off privately, Michael Corleone. He walks up to his henchman and he says to his henchman, I don't want anything to happen to him while my mother is still alive. And then time goes by and their mother, of course, dies. And for the first time in a while at the funeral, the brothers are reunited. And at the funeral, the brothers embrace one another. And while they're hugging one another, as, as Michael is holding Fredo's head into his body, he looks up across the room at his henchmen. And, and the look in his eyes makes it everyone knows what the look in Michael Corleone's, Michael Corleone's eyes means when he stares at his henchmen. The look in his eyes is basically to say, the time has come. The time is now. And sure enough, shortly after their mother's funeral, before their mother's body is even cold in the ground, Michael has his brother Fredo killed. And that is exactly... That is exactly what the older brothers are thinking Joseph is preparing to do. Their lingering guilt, which, which arises out of their father Jacob's death, rekindles this latent fear in them that Joseph, who is even more powerful than Michael Corleone, that Joseph is going to leverage all the power of Egypt to punish them. And so we're told in verses 16 and 17, so they sent a message. See, they weren't even willing to approach him face to face. This is years after they had been reunited and lived under Joseph's mercy and provision and care. They sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now 
please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Tim Keller's summary of what they're saying here is dad said, be nice. (laughs) But you have to even wonder and all scholars wonder, did Jacob even say that to them? So the brothers finally do appear before Joseph and they bow before him. And they say to him in verse 18, behold, we are your servants. I don't know how sincere they were. I think they were legitimately afraid. I don't know how sincere they were that they truly wanted to be Joseph's servants. Uh, But their words, behold, we are your servants. That really does capture the heart of true repentance. The sign of true repentance is this. A willingness to relinquish your status and to accept the consequences. They're essentially saying to him, we're willing to give up even being your family. What did, what did Michael say to Fredo? You're nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. And essentially, that's their assumption. They come to him and say, just let us live. We'll, we'll, we're happy to just even be your servants. Repentance, true repentance, is a willingness to relinquish your status and accept the consequences. What did the prodigal son say, according to Jesus, in Luke chapter 15? What did the prodigal son say to his dad when he came to his senses and returned home and he had been practicing it the whole way home and he stood before his father and he said these words, dad, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, repentance, real repentance, it submits to a process Of earning back the trust that you have broken. Uh, In ministry, you, you, you work with all sorts of people. You even work with abusive people. And time and time again, I, I have watched abusive people say they're sorry. But then at the same time, demand that everything be exactly like it was originally. You see, anybody can say they're sorry. But are you willing, are you willing to rebuild trust? If you're sorry, but you won't accept the consequences, then you haven't changed at all. If you want people to forgive you, then repent. You repent. Don't worry about whether or not they're going to forgive you. That's their job. Your job is to change. A change of heart and mind that results in changed behavior. You want people to forgive you? Repent. That will help them begin to forgive you. Jacob's sons, despite their very weak attempt at repentance, nonetheless opened a door for Joseph, who is a very different kind of man, to respond. So the reverse is true. Pursuing forgiveness encourages others to repent. Pursuing forgiveness encourages the people who have hurt you to repent themselves. We're told in verse 17, when he got the letter, 
when he got the message that they had sent to him, Joseph wept. Some of you understand that perfectly. You go home for the holidays or you go on vacation, you go to some kind of a family reunion or a get together and and you're so discouraged, right? Because after decades, after after years, things haven't changed after after years, you're just as frustrated that dynamics aren't different. Forty years had passed and Joseph weeps that the relationship still isn't what he hoped it would be. It is possible that the memory of their abuse was still painful for him. Of course, you still know pain. You still bear the scars of of what has happened to you in your life, even if it was 50 years ago. But more likely, Joseph's tears are the result of the fact that they still don't understand him. He is weeping because his brothers, after all that time, Of living with him again. Living under his care and protection and blessing. After all of that. They misunderstand his motives completely. They think he's Michael Corleone. And he's not. And it brings him to weak. Because even now his own family doesn't understand him. And so forgiveness. Requires painful patience. With people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that forgiveness is a form of suffering. Joseph's response, however, in the midst of his own pain is remarkable. He says to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner in his Genesis commentary says that Joseph's reply here is the pinnacle. The pinnacle of biblical faith. To leave all of the writing of one's wrongs to God. To see God's providence in man's malice. And to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. Joseph backed up his words with tangible expressions of love and mercy and care to his brothers and their families. And in this one phrase, am I in the place of God? Joseph is doing two very important things. First of all, he's giving all the credit to God. Everything that has happened, all all the tragedy and all the good that has come out of that tragedy. He gives all the credit and all the glory to God. God brought tremendous good out of their conflict. But he's doing another thing. He's also saying that God alone has the right to justice. God gets all the credit and God alone gets the justice. God alone sits in the judgment seat. So Joseph's tears permit you. The tears of Joseph give you permission to grieve the pain, the abuse, the broken relationships that you've suffered. Joseph's tears give you permission to no longer deny any of that. 
People tell you, the world tells you, you should ignore and deny and bury and stuff all of that painful stuff. Don't believe it for a second. Don't believe it. Grieve over it. But at the same time, Joseph's forgiveness challenges you, does it not? Joseph, Joseph's forgiveness challenges you to pursue mercy with the very people who hurt you. Joseph's act of forgiveness is like a beam of light, right? It exposes our vindictiveness. It, it exposes our vengeance, our sulking, our pity parties. Suzanne Bates is a professor and a counselor in St. Louis. And Suzanne said, forgiveness is giving up your right to be right. Even if you have the moral high ground, forgiveness is saying, I'm not going to leverage that fact against the person who has hurt me. Suzanne went on to say, it is forgiveness is refusing to ask others to pay for a penalty for their wrongdoing. And in fact, to forgive means you will take up the cost or penalty for the wrong done. Again, forgiveness is suffering. And even when reconciliation is not possible, right? Because the person who hurt you is dead. They're not here anymore. You can't talk to them. They can't talk to you. Or, or maybe some people will never acknowledge what they've done. Some people will never comprehend it. Or some people will refuse to see it and acknowledge it. Even when reconciliation, for whatever reason, is not possible in this life, you can still pursue forgiveness where it absolutely must start in the first place. Your heart. That's where forgiveness begins. Right in the heart. Because of time, I can't get into Jesus' parable about the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. You should take a look at it. But Jesus wraps up that parable about this guy who had been forgiven so much, who was unwilling to forgive others for the little offenses against him. In the end, he wraps it all up by saying, hey, do you expect God to forgive you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart? See, that's the key. Jesus reveals something fascinating about the nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not primarily, it is this, but it is not primarily this, a verbal transaction between two people. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will forgive you. Let's get back to life. I would agree that it is a blessing when you can have that verbal interaction. But forgiveness primarily, according to Jesus, is a heart transaction between you and your creator. And that can happen anytime. Dan Allender, in another place, wrote this, that to forgive another means to cancel a debt in order to provide a door of opportunity for two things. A door of opportunity for repentance and a door of opportunity to, for restoration of the broken relationship. Forgiveness does not wait passively for repentance to occur. It offers the offender a taste of mercy and strength designed to expose and destroy sin. So reconciliation is when the offended person focuses on forgiveness. And when the offender 
focuses on repentance. If someone has hurt you, don't obsess over whether or not they're sorry. Your role is to practice forgiveness. Have you hurt someone? Don't obsess over whether or not they're willing to forgive you and trust you again. You focus on repenting. When each does their part, reconciliation is possible. So, in your conflicts, why not let God be God? Joyce Baldwin, in her Genesis commentary, said, The question arises whether it's possible to attain to Joseph's generosity of heart without his theology. Joseph was only able to do and say what, what he did because of what he believed about God. Everything we've been talking about for the last couple of months, how Joseph knew that God was with him in prison, that God was with him in servitude, that God was with him in the midst of injustice, that God was with him as he negotiated and, and mitigated a famine for an entire society. God was with him all along and he was able to say to people, you've done many things to hurt me, but God meant it all for good. God sent me ahead of my brothers so that much good could transpire. Joseph's theology enabled him to forgive. Yes, it is difficult to forgive. It may be the hardest thing you will ever have to do in this life. Yes. But if you are unwilling to forgive, you're pursuing vengeance. Even if you're not flamboyant and extroverted, even if it's subtle, even if it's wordless, even if it's without rage and drama and a big show, even if you never murder the person, even if it's quiet and you never say a word, if you're unwilling to forgive in your heart, you're pursuing vengeance. And again, as Tim Keller said, what God is saying to you when you are pursuing vengeance is you're sitting in my seat. Get out of my seat. As Joseph knew, the seat of judgment is a place that you and I are not worthy to sit in. We're not capable of it. We cannot sit in the judgment seat. Today's conflict and injustice and fighting and oppression, it's all the result of people again and again sitting in a judgment seat that they are not capable of, equipped to, or worthy to sit in. But pursuing righteousness unlocks the door to forgiveness. Pursuing righteousness unlocks the door to repent. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mountainside, you know, many of you know this passage. When Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life. Right? He said, don't worry about your food and your clothes and, and your house and where you live, your, the materialistic things that everybody in the world worries about. Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life. But what? Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. 
When Jesus said that, it not only applies to our material needs, we can deduce, we can extrapolate from the principle that when Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life, but seek first God's kingdom, seek first God's righteousness, that also applies to our social needs. It applies to our relational needs. Are you finding it impossible to forgive someone? Or are you afraid of retribution from somebody that you have hurt? Seek God's righteousness. Which is to say, without going into great depths, to seek the righteousness of God is to seek the only person who ever was righteous. To seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness instead of having anxiety over our material and social needs is to seek Jesus himself. It is to seek the son of God, the man who is ultimately righteous, who gives his righteousness to us as a gift through faith. Can you not forgive a person? Are you in fear of someone's retribution against you? Seek Jesus, seek his face, seek his presence, seek his voice, seek his wisdom in whatever you're dealing with. Seek him first. Make that your priority. And praise God for Jesus, who's the only one, the only one ever who deserved and was competent enough to sit in God's judgment seat. Joseph even knew I, I cannot sit in that seat. And, and Joseph is about the best hero the Bible can, humanly speaking, that the Bible offers, right? And Joseph, even Joseph knew, I can't sit in that seat. So why do you think you can? Praise God that Jesus did not sit in the judgment seat that belonged to him. But he hung on a cross and he said, as they crucified him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. C.S. Lewis, in his famous work, The Weight of Glory, has a wonderful little chapter on forgiveness. And he, wrote, and he wrote, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the person who has done it. That and only that is forgiveness. And that we can always have from God if we ask for it. And he went on to write, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And when you experience God's forgiveness yourself. And those of you who have it know this is true. When you experience that God has forgiven the inexcusable in you, it opens the door of your soul towards reconciliation. It unlocks the key of your heart to begin to forgive or begin to repent. So my friends, be patient. The same Holy Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. If you're a Christian and have God's righteousness as a gift by your faith. The same Holy Spirit indwells you. 
which means the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and will give you what you need to forgive. It is a promise. It is in the Lord's prayer. If you want to forgive people, guess what? God will give you the power to forgive because it's what he wants. When Jesus says, ask for things in my name and and you'll be given them. And then you go, what did he mean? I wanted that job and God didn't give it to you. Did not give it to me? Well, you don't know if God wants that job for you. He wants you to forgive. And when you ask him for the power to forgive, he will forgive you. Amen? Actually, he will help you to forgive others is what I meant to say. So be patient. God will give you what you need to forgive. And God will give you what you need to repent. Corey ten Boom during the Second World War in the Netherlands, lost her father, lost her sister, and lost her own dignity in a Nazi work camp uh, because their family uh, was caught and arrested for harboring Jews. And after the war, uh, she basically went on a speaking circuit uh, throughout the area uh, telling Europe as a Christian, telling Europe, we need to forgive the Germans. We need to forgive the Nazis. That was her routine. That was her message. Until one day, when she was done speaking, a man came up to her, and she recognized him as one of the SS officers in the prison camp where she stayed. This man had laughed at her. This man had seen her naked. This man was part of an acute system that killed her dad and her sister and left her with virtually nothing. And the man approached her and it's a, it's fascinating. Read the hiding place. And the man approached her and offered his hand and said to her, isn't it wonderful how God even forgives my sins? The man had begun to repent and he was excited to talk to this woman about the forgiveness that he had discovered in Jesus Christ, even for his sins. And she writes that she could not extend her hand. She writes that she could not forgive him. This woman who had been talking about forgiveness, when really pressed with facing her own oppressor, discovered in that moment that she could not forgive. And this is what she wrote. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. And she said as, as, he, as he stood there smiling with his arm outstretched to hers, she writes, suddenly it was all there. Just think of Joseph and what he remembered. Think of you and what you remember. She said, it was all there. The room full of mocking men. The heaps of clothing. My sister's pain-blanched face. And then she said, Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. She saw her own sin, not even his. She said, Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? And she prayed the simple prayer in that moment, in that split second. She said, Lord Jesus, forgive me and help me to forgive him. And if you read it, something incredible happened. She was filled with the spirit of God who gave her the power of God to forgive this man. 
And she felt the love of God for this man. A love that she did not have in herself. And she concludes that portion of the account by saying, when God tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. Reconciliation requires that you pursue repentance and forgiveness. Each doing their part. Have you hurt someone? Let God work forgiveness in them. You repent. You change. You ask him for help. You ask us for help. We have resources on the book table specifically for dealing with conflict and abuse as well. They're there for a reason. Or talk to somebody that you trust and respect. And if we can't help you, we'll find someone who can. Pursue repentance. Pursue forgiveness if you're the offended party. If someone has hurt you and you cannot forgive, do not focus on whether or not they are simp- whether they are not sorry. Let God work repentance in them. You ask him to help you forgive. Let God be God in your conflicts. Let God be God and pursue Jesus Christ. Pursue him. More than you're pursuing forgiveness, more than you're pursuing repentance, pursue him, the face and word and life of Jesus to unlock the doors of forgiveness in your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for power from your spirit and wisdom from your word to do what our Lord Jesus did as he hung on a cross. We have called ourselves Christians. May we act like him. Even. In the worst of it. Father I pray for anybody here today. Who cannot forgive. Or cannot repent. That you would give to them. The power they need. From you. To love. So that out of your love for them. And your forgiveness for them. They would receive what they need. To change. They would receive what they need. To be merciful. All for Jesus. In his name, we thank you and entrust our conflicts and the wounds of our souls to our great Savior. Amen.